All right, well, hello and welcome to episode 37 of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss market events over the past week while at the same time reviewing and quaffing a few beers. My name is Boaz Shoshan and I'm joined as ever by Sam Volkering. Sam, how are you getting on today? Uh, I'm good. I mean, how exciting is this? This is our very first clubhouse room. Uh, we, uh, we've, we've, we've reached some sort of technical milestone in that I've got like uh, my microphone hooked up to a Ring Central recording and the iPhone on a stand talking to you. And I'm drinking beers at 2.30 on a Thursday, which I'm going to admit I have not done in a very, very long time. So it's all very exciting to be on Clubhouse, which, which we, we should pro- I should probably add a caveat to that. That I think on our podcast was a couple of weeks ago, I described Clubhouse as somewhat of an orgy between LinkedIn where uh, Instagram decided to gate crash it. Uh, out combined with a Zoom meeting when nobody mutes their microphone. So this should be an interesting experiment. Yeah, we, in, in fairness, we have spoken about Clubhouse in maybe not the most positive of tones on this <laughs> podcast. However, it is worth, I think, trying it out uh, and just seeing how it goes. I mean, most people who do listen to this podcast won't be listening through Clubhouse, but it, you know, it's a good idea to, to try it out and whatnot. Anyway, we should be getting on uh, with the show somewhat. Has been a fascinating week in markets. I mean, <laughs> there were, every week seems to be so far this year, to be honest with you. Uh, this week, we've had uh, the GameStop saga returning, you know, like a, a zombie from the grave. We've got a, a huge rally in, in the likes of GameStop. Uh, a lot of people thinking that the NASDAQ was uh, done for, and then, you know, the NASDAQ's getting another rally again. Gold seems to maybe have bottomed after an absolutely brutal month. Uh, and just in general, commodities seem to be uh, keeping their rally going. Uh, in this uh, in this episode, the 37th of our humble mm. podcast, we shall be introducing a new segment actually to it, which is called the bullish and bearish uh, segment. But we'll get to that in a moment. First off, uh, first point of order, of course, is uh, is the beer. So Sam, what do you want today? Yeah, so the first beer I've got is from the Full Circle Brew Co. Uh, it's a DDH Pale Ale, uh, 5.2%, and it's called What's in the Bag? Um, and th- to be fair, the two beers that I chose to drink today on this episode, I, um, I, I, I picked from a selection to try and get some sort of uh, meaning from them. And, and I couldn't help but think, and the first thing, the very first thing that came to mind when I picked what's in the bag was uh, my thoughts turned to Jerome Powell. And um, just, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, because let's be honest, we all know what's in the bag and it's just pure money um so anyway this is yeah what's in the bag full circle brew co uh which is uh up in newcastle upon tyne uh yeah looking forward to it haven't haven't started it yet but we'll get stuck in and we'll we'll give it a rating which we can suppose kind of explain uh when we get to that point but um bottoms up i guess yeah quite quite i'm i'm much looking forward to my second beer rather than to my my first one the second one will be one called alternative currency which i think is uh, you know a very a very relevant beer to be drinking these days but uh, the first one i am on is uh, yet another uh, doppelbox so we're on aventinus by schneider weiser yet again uh, for those uh, new to the podcast this is now the fourth week of my beer fast where I've not been eating any food and instead have just been relying on beer for my calories, obviously still drinking water, still having multi- multivitamins and the like, but uh, I've not been eating food for the last, uh, well, almost, well, we're about three and a half weeks into it now. <laughs> and uh, I was originally intending to only drink Doppelbox, so only drink this beer, 
Uh, however, uh, I found that drinking only this beer and no others uh, did not agree with me at all. So I, I have moved beyond that. But I thought it would be interesting to review this beer uh, through every week that I've done this fast for just to see whether or not I like it. And uh, I, the prognosis is definitely negative, I would say. This is... <laughs> This is starting to taste absolutely disgusting. So I think we may even be in store for the first AAA or even AAA minus rating on this podcast. But we shall get to that in a little bit anyway. So Sam, uh, on the bullish bearish segment, this is something uh, that you and I have had a few discussions on in the past. But I thought it would make, make things slightly more interesting where uh, every week we take one news item or one, uh, one topic uh, and say whether or not we are bullish or bearish on something. If you think you see an asset that's going to appreciate, or if you see uh, even a behavior that you think is going to appreciate, or uh, a phenomenon that you think is going to appreciate, you, you can say that you're bullish on it. And this doesn't mean because uh, you really want that to happen, but it's just something you expect uh, will happen more in the future, and vice versa with the bearish segment. Now, uh, so for the bullish segment, I thought I'd start off just to sort of show what this is kind of meant to be about. Uh, on, on, in, the, in terms of this week, some of the things I've been looking at, I would say I am now bullish on DIY drone strikes because <laughs> uh, the attack on Saudi Arabia on Sunday, uh, which is, uh, has yet to be confirmed as to where it exactly came from. A lot of people think it's from the Houthis in Yemen, uh, but it now appears that the drone actually uh, originated uh, either in Iraq or actually directly from Iran. Oh, wow. Uh, was uh, you know it was targeted right at the largest oil exporting uh, facility in the on the entire planet didn't do any damage but the fact is it was uh, you know it was a drone that was uh, created using technology that was really only only feasible only here over the past decade and the ability of drones to be manufactured uh, the proliferation of drones in the middle east but uh, you know particularly uh, coming from big exporting nations like china uh, is only going to lead to more and more of these DIY drone strikes. Now, the same is true, really, uh, probably for the, the less DIY drone strikes, the likes that the U.S. like to do. I did note that the, uh, the MQ-9 Reaper drone, which is used by the U.S. Air Force, I think it was over the past month, the, uh, the, what, what they are after in terms of the upgrades when they're, when they're submitting tenders to industry, they've said that the MQ-9 Reaper drone, which has been used uh, you know, to mostly throughout the last 10 years for uh, blowing up Al-Qaeda strongholds and the like, uh, you know, it's actually been, they really want this thing to have air-to-air combat uh, capabilities, which is really uh, quite a step up from what the MQ-9 Reaper was for. But going back to the original point, I do think that uh, DIY drone strikes, are, are, we are going to see a lot more of this in the future. I'm not cheering this on. <laughs> I should say this is, uh, this is simply something I expect we're going to see a lot more of. I think, uh, especially when it comes to things like oil, uh, drones, uh, drone strikes are going to become a lot more, a lot more important. And the Houthis, uh, in, in, well, sorry, carry on. I was going to say, does that then make you bullish on oil, or does that just make you bullish on like the companies that are making the the drones, like General Atomics and um, or what else? Ray, Ray, who else is there? Raytheon, um, companies Lockheed like Martin, Boeing, yeah, Lockheed yeah, Martin. Yeah. Sorry, yep. Um, and or or even some of the like smaller consumer style style. Um, drone companies um you know like dji and those sorts of things because like i mean we know that that anybody can kind of strap a bomb to a consumer grade drone if they wanted to which is kind of terrifying to be honest but is it is it that you're bullish on the drones or you're bullish on like what the impact could be if they start hitting more oil uh depositories 
Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say yes on both. On oil, I, I'm slightly biased as uh, I am from Aberdeen, which is a, a big oil town. And I would like to see higher oil prices just because uh, it, it would be better for my hometown. However, I, do, I am bullish on oil this year. Uh, I do think that the, uh, the green drive, uh, while it's hoovered up an awful lot of capital, I think neglects the reality that oil is something that is really desperately needed. And oil is now higher in price, at least if you're looking at the futures, uh, than it was prior to the lockdowns. So we haven't even reopened yet. The world economy has, is not firing on all cylinders yet. And yet the oil price is already higher than it was. So I think this year will be good for oil. I think we might mm. see $100 oil this year. Uh, but of course, when it comes to drone manufacturing and proliferation, yeah, uh, I, I, would, uh, I, would definitely, I would definitely agree with that. I do know the Aerovironment, one of the, uh, I believe it's, is, there, is AVAV a European manufacturer or an American one? Sometimes I get a little confused. No, uh, I think Parrot is the, is the European one. I do know the Aerovironment is started to, to tick up again after, after a while. Um, but yeah, I, just into, I, I won't ramble on for too long on my, on my bullish segment. Uh, but I do think that we are going to see more DIY drone strikes. I mean, the, the, the Houthis in Yemen are a particularly big uh, user of these. Iran has a very uh, strong domestic manufacturing base for drones. They've done some pretty advanced stuff. Uh, but Houthis are, you know, they, take, they have some pretty interesting, um, pretty interesting tactics when it comes to, uh, you know, their war on Saudi Arabia and a, very, a lot of improvised stuff. You know, I remember listening to uh, um, an interview with a defense analyst uh, on the sector, looking at that Saudi Arabia, Saudi, um, well, it's more like GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council, war on, uh, on the rebels in Yemen. Mm. And, you know, they're actually launching, they, because a lot of their the guys are camped out in the mountains, they actually launch supplies up there on rockets in order, you know, to, to get it up there. That's the quickest way of That'd getting there. That'd be tricky there. to catch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, I think mean, it's something almost out of a sci-fi novel. And there's, there's also strange stuff where, you know, because it's so ragtag and there's not the, um, you know, the, they don't have the kind of you know, medical infrastructure and stuff. They, you know, they, they rely on uh, amphetamines, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, <laughs> to, get, to keep their, their fighters, you know, alert and in the game. And they actually take Viagra to stop bleeding, which, uh, you know, it's just really, really, you know, crazy stuff. So I, I remember, that, I, th I believe the phrase was, uh, one to make you crazy and one to stop the bleeding. So they give these, uh, th these out one each, you know, in pairs of two, one, one pill of Viagra and one of uh, amphetamine to their guys. And it's just, you know, just crazy, uh, just a crazy sort of uh, war that is going on there. So it's, you know, it's brutal, it's like a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen. Uh, but, you know, I do think that that, the, that DIY drone operation, I mean, it's obviously having some effect and it, you know, it will continue to in the future. But anyway, enough rambling from me. Sam, what are you bullish on at the moment? Well, I was going to say, it sounds like their days off must just be wild up in the mountains there. Um, look, for me, when it comes to, to bullish, something that's really made me quite bullish, probably isn't a great, great surprise to anybody. But the more I see, and this is maybe cheating a little bit, it's not necessarily one thing, but the abundance uh, of mainstream articles about the environmental disaster that Bitcoin is going to become or has already become, and it's just going to get worse. So that basically within the next 18 to 24 months, Bitcoin will use all the world's energy and we will all be um, freezing in our homes come winter. Um, and it, it, is, it is the apocalyptic horseman rolling through. And I mean, it's just the biggest crock of, of bullshit, basically. And I've, I mean, I've even had subscribers writing going, you know, I'm really worried about uh, the 
Bitcoin's energy before I start to invest. And I feel like I've failed in my work in terms of trying to help educate people about all this when I keep seeing this in the mainstream. And it's kind of like this, this cycle that we're in at the moment. Um, this is like in the first few cycles, there was that meme that was going around of grandpa Simpson with the, um, news article and someone had, you know, photoshopped it to just say old man yells at Bitcoin. Um, and it feels like this, this energy argument is this cycle's version of that. Um, when the reality is far from it. I mean, if anything, Bitcoin's more than likely going to become uh, the, a, a green energy savior and, and help push forward and develop new uh, greener ways, I suppose, of accessing energy to, to, to mine Bitcoin and, and, and other cryptocurrencies. Or, I mean, the, the, the point is, is that a lot of the time the mainstream just miss out on the fundamental facts of how Bitcoin's network operates, uh, the diminishing minor rewards, and then layer, like things we've talked about on this podcast before, like layer two solutions like the Lightning Network or side chains like RSK, and how that they can process a lot of the things that all the mainstream are writing about, saying it's going to be an environmental disaster. Um, you know, a great amount of mining uh, of Bitcoin right now is done with renewables anyway. Uh, and you one people might have seen in the last week about the um, the CT company or SETI or I'm not I'm not sure again pronunciation isn't my forte, but they're going to be using you know renewable energy, unused stagnant energy around solar, wind, and hydro uh, to to run mining operations, and, and they're going to have their entire treasury in Bitcoin. So the more I see things like that in the mainstream, you know Bitcoin is going to destroy the world's energy supplies. Believe it or not, the more bullish I get about it uh, surviving being a you know a long term thing. I mean. When I say surviving, it, it, you can't kill it. It's not going to die. Um, but I certainly think that it, it supports a case for a bullish sentiment uh, for it going forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, normally I don't mind the articles uh, from the mainstream press and, uh, you know, mainstream economists uh, saying Bitcoin it cannot function as a store of value. It couldn't be a currency because it's too volatile. So just, you know, I don't normally mind that. The but I must I must admit the energy articles have really rubbed me the wrong way uh, because I I it is they are definitely being done uh, like the the stories are being seeded by individuals who know it's a disingenuous argument but are pushing it anyway because uh, they think it will gain political traction with uh, the green crowd and the like. I mean, It'll get clicks basically. Well, no, no, I think it's more insidious than that. I don't, I don't think it's just about clicks. I think it is definitely something that is being put on the agenda for politicians who want to push a get push, a, you know, to go for for the green angle, uh, and and that will shape policy. Uh, so I do think it is being put out there by people who know, you know, who who know it's ridiculous. It's so arbitrary to go after Bitcoin as uh, you know an industry that uses energy. None of these guys, uh, you know, who who are now saying that Bitcoin uses too much energy. You know, when have we be when in the past have we used this argument for anything? Right. Yeah. What about Christmas lights? What about tumble dryers? <laughs> right. None of these guys what about are saying the phones that they're t that they're tweeting and, and posting this from, or the computers that they're writing it on, or the energy that they're using in their home office to to get it all done. I, I yeah, think exactly. It's kind of like they're running out of things to argue for. So it's like, well, what, what can we grasp at now to try and figure out why we are still no coiners uh, that haven't joined this party? 
Yeah, uh, so I see, I really do think it's, uh, it's an argument that is being put forward in bad faith. There are some people who, uh, you know, who are just follow, going along with it because you know, they're very pro-environment and they, you know, big uses of energy are equal bad kind of thing. Uh, but I do think it's being seeded originally from a, uh, you know, from a place uh, that is really quite, not, not malicious, but it is being, is an argument that is being put uh, by people who simply disagree with Bitcoin. And then they're using this, they're creating this straw man to beat it with, which I, which I, which kind of rubs me the wrong way. But at the same time, you know, every bull market is uh, full of walls of worry. And maybe this yeah. is just going to be one of the, one of the walls of worry that it, that it crests. But uh, Sam, how would you rate, how would you rate your beer? What's in the bag? Well, what's in the bag so far is uh, it's, it's quite good. So, I mean, it is, well, as I've said before, I think that the, the perfect beer will fall somewhere between 5 to 7% in terms of ABV. Uh, the hops in this one are the Idaho 7 and Simcoe, which are reasonably common. And to be fair, this isn't, I suppose this isn't the kind of beer that I would say is a revelation. Um, but at the same time, it's not exactly taken too long to get to sort of the bottom of the glass with this one. So it's very easy to drink. Um, you know, sometimes DDHs can be kind of heavy, but I think this one being on the lighter sort of spectrum of the alcohol content makes that a little bit easier to stomach. Uh, definitely best served cold. Not that I've had it warm, but I'm assuming warm would be pretty rubbish. Um, I can't see if it's got our good old suitable for vegan label on it at all, Damn. Uh, which suggests that it may not be. Oh, no, wait, there we are. Suitable for vegans. There you go. Happy, <laughs> happy days for anybody that's a vegan out there. What's in the bag is fine. So go for it. Uh, cool label too. It's like a religious style, psychedelic kind of label. So it looks good. Drinks pretty well. Um, if I had to give it a rating, uh, which I probably, I might hold off because I haven't quite finished it yet. And so we're probably a little bit early on the, on the ratings for this one, but so far, so good. Oh, very good. Very good. Uh, on my side, uh, I'm afraid, yeah, this is, this is not going down very well. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not enjoying drinking this, but I am drinking it as fast as I can just to get it over with. Uh, but I, I think I am prepared to give a rating. And Sam, I think it's time for the AAA. For uh, anyone, anyone new listening to this uh, podcast, we do have rather convoluted rating system here. It's the it's kind of the way that uh, bonds, investment bonds, are are uh, rated in markets by the ratings agencies like uh, Fitch and Moody's and the like, except flipped on its head. So normally, with an investment grade bond, you'd have uh, AAA being the you know the best the best grade bond. This would be something from a government, for example. Whereas junk would be Triple uh, B. So we kind of uh, swapped it around. So triple B is actually the best, as of, as of course it's booze, booms, and busts. And then you go double B, sim single B, single A, double A, and then the worst being triple A. And I think, uh, you know, after after having this beer for quite some time, I'm afraid this is a triple A, Sam. I I think this is actually our first. Is that right? Uh, well, funnily enough, last week you gave this uh, a triple A. So I, I would I would really? almost you did you started. I off thought I gave it a double A minus. Uh, that was the week before. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> progressively oh, mate, it's going to have to be triple A minus then. It's triple it A minus. It would have to be. And I, I kind of feel like, so like usually when we do this podcast, uh, not on Clubhouse, just on, on, a, on a Ring Central meeting and we record it. 
sometimes we don't get to our first beer rating till about 45 minutes into the podcast. We're kind of like 20 <laughs> minutes in now and we're rating it. And I just get the feeling that you really wanted to just dispose of this as fast as possible and move on to the next one. Yeah, you know, actually, interestingly, for, uh, for our, our podcast listeners, um, I did actually buy, as I said uh, earlier, I was planning on drinking only this beer during my beer fast. Uh, and as a result, I bought an awful lot of it. And uh, now I have quite a store of it that I, you know, I don't actually want to drink. So uh, if there is anybody who is willing to brave, you know, this beer, maybe tw <laughs> a 20 bottle case of it, perhaps we'll find some, some kind of competition and I can send it to a, to a, to a listener. Yeah, uh, maybe, we'll come maybe hit us up on Twitter or something. Uh, we, we, we have yet, I mean, we're on Clubhouse. We should, shouldn't we do the old like, follow, share um, thing for Twitter, our Twitter account as well? Go for it. By all means. Like, follow, share at Booze Booms Busts. Uh, and yeah, Boaz may send you a case of beer. <laughs> I think we, I think now we shouldn't make it too easy. Too easy. The need, we'll do a competition like we did right. previously with one. Uh, but we'll, we'll figure come up something with that. out. Yeah, we'll, we'll come up with that next week. Yeah. But Sam, uh, for our bearish segment, would you like to would you like to start with the bearish segment this time, or do you want me to? Yeah, I'll, I'll kick off with this one because I, I'm I'm somewhat bemused here in the UK that this is it's getting some attention, but it's really not getting the attention it deserves. And maybe that's because of I don't know. I heard there was like some interview that Oprah did. I don't know. There's some things that have caught the attention of, of the UK like nothing else. But the collapse of Greensill capital is astonishing to me. And, and how this is not headline front page news. Well, okay, it's quite obvious why that's not the case. But this is, this is huge. This is um, just another example of the traditional financial system um, and basic incompetence, misdirection, sleight of hand. Um, that is, that is a, it's a systemic risk to the, to the traditional system. Um, and it makes me very bearish for the, for the traditional system because this is just another example. And, you know, we've got the likes of Credit Suisse tied up in this. Um, good old SoftBank with Maya, Ma, uh, Masayoshi-san um, who, who, you know, did his dough about 18 billion on WeWork. He's done a couple of billion uh, on Greensill here trying to prop it up from uh, last year. I mean, this is, this is ridiculously huge news and it's just not getting the coverage that it should be, but I, it's a systemic risk. And I think we're going to see more of this start to play out as a lot of these companies that have been built on women of prayer uh, collapse in the way that Greensill has. And I think that makes me very bearish uh, about the traditional financial system. Right, Sam. So I think one of the reasons why this doesn't get quite as much traction as it would is because a lot of the transactions involved in the Greensill Capital um, debacle, should we say, uh, are quite complicated. Uh, regard, like, well, or or they, you know, they they take a bit of uh, sort of prior knowledge to really understand what's going on or to be really interested in it. Right. So I'm sure in the fullness of time, somebody will probably make a documentary about this. Or somebody will <laughs> write a very long, or maybe even a book about this, right? Where they will simplify things down and make it, you know, uh, digestible for, uh, you know, the broad public. But, it, you know, I do agree that the collapse of Greensill Capital is a, is a massive event. It's almost, well, it's not like Enron or WorldCom because, uh, you know, nobody's heard of Greensill before. It's but kind of it wire is, card it, level. 
Yeah, except again, nobody's heard of green cell. Never like people had heard of Wirecard. So, yeah. could you uh, could you, in your own words, uh, describe what's gone on with green cell uh, to to our listeners? Um, no, it's that complicated. <laughs> like I, I've been doing, I've been trying to read up about how they've been um, facilitating their lending to to businesses and operations, uh, like the, the the steel company, the big steel company. I can't remember the name of it. Um, and it's really confusing. I mean, it, it, it smells to me a lot like the kind of packaged up securities uh, that we got in, that everyone got in trouble with, or everyone got in trouble, that the banks got in trouble with in 2008. And it, and it feels like from the last, what, 10, 11, 12, 13, almost years now, it's just like they've figured out that they can't do what they did before. So they're just figuring out new ways to package up what's effectively rubbish debt, sell it to idiots who then resell it back to themselves, who then sell it on to others, split it up, divide it, send it back. And then ultimately somewhere along the line, it collapses. I mean, it just feels like it's, it's that kind of complex and that difficult to understand. I mean, if anybody's listening that can understand it and, and explain it in you know, a sentence, feel free to jump in and let us know. But I mean, good luck explaining this in a sentence. As I said, you know, Masayoshi-san kicked in money to prop them up. I think it was last year. Um, they'd sold some packaged uh, debt to Credit Suisse who had done something else. There was there were some private jets that got sold or leased and then leased back to the company. And this is what makes me so bearish about the traditional financial system is that you just get all of this stuff circulating between the, you know, the, the elite in their ivory towers. Um, and it's just like this weird recirculation where they all try and get rich off of it. And then ultimately something collapses. And the impact is that people are losing jobs. You know, people that have in no way involved themselves in this kind of debacle are just trying to you know, earn a living and get ahead, get caught up with it, end up unemployed, end up, you know, risking or losing a whole bunch of pension money. And they're the ones that suffer, but no one ever gets held to account for it. And I just wonder that this tipping point that we've described so many times about how, how fragmented, how complex, how difficult, and how restrictive the traditional system is, is exactly why we're seeing such an, such a, a rise in interest, uh, development in, in decentralized networks, in, in crypto, in Bitcoin, in decentralized finance and all of that. It's like the green seal just reaffirms why that's happening now. Um, and I think it's just, it'll be this, I mean, Wirecard was one, green seals another. These are just two recent ones. You know, some of these big um, global institutional banks, investment banks you know they pay out billions of dollars in fines and and aml ctf breaches every year um, nothing seems to have changed and the more that nothing changes and the more that we end up with central banks continuing on their merry run and just propping up what is effectively a house of cards the, the stronger i think decentralized systems are going to get so that's what makes me really bearish about all this so are you bearish on the likes of Masayoshi-san or is this uh, just oh, bearish on Greensill? Like seriously, I mean, I, I don't see how there's any other way to describe what he's, what he's doing. And, and he just, you know, it seems like he gets away with it every time. Um, well, that's, so that, that makes me think he's, he's not an idiot because I mean, like this is the guy who was the world's wealthiest man during the dot-com boom. And he's, I think he still holds the record of the guy who's lost the most money like in history or whatever, after the dot-com crash. And yet, 
he still manages to be at the forefront of all these things. I think with the Greensill debacle, though, is it becomes a criminal uh, issue, right? I mean, there, there, with Greensill, there is fraud going on. I mean, this is, this is crime that's taken place. Yeah. I think Masayoshi-san, I mean, he, like, he clearly has, you know, he's clearly very talented to some degree, and he gets away with creating, you know, just selling the most basic sort of story. It's like the most basic dream. If you ever see a, a SoftBank investor pr presentation and the slides that they will show you, uh, it is incredible how basic. It's like the, something uh, I made in year seven. Yeah, and yet he gets away with it and still, he still manages to raise a few billion. So maybe one of the stories here is that there's more of a money laundering element going on. Maybe that was one of the reasons why it was so easy to, to, uh, you know, to invest so much money and stuff. But with yeah, with SoftBank Masayoshi-san, because remember, like, well, you know, we, and we've discussed this in previous podcasts, yeah. Masayoshi-san at SoftBank is one of the key guys that's actually sort of created the unicorn phenomenon, the tech startup that gets a billion-dollar valuation very quickly. Masayoshi-san at SoftBank is one of the key guys that's sort of been breeding these unicorns. It's like he's farming them, right? And I wonder if, if Greensill is enough you know this debacle with Greensill is enough to re to finally take sun down a peg because you know he survived.com he survived 2008 he's still here now i he wonder is the to the tune of 18 billion on WeWork though and that didn't take him down true right i but i wonder if the, if this does take him down then maybe. maybe this says something more about the unicorn phenomenon maybe that's a, maybe that's a signal that you know unicorns are finally going <laughs> to become rare again, right? Well, I mean, we, and we might be going off on a slight tangent. We'll get to your bearish, uh, bearish aspect in a moment. But I mean, oh, yeah, sure. this idea about, about um, unicorns, I mean, unicorns used to be like, and we've, we've said this before, unicorns were the rarity uh, in, in all of, you know, in, the, in a billion dollar valuation. It's like, yeah. oh my God. It, now, if you're if you're coming to market, which a lot of them are doing ver via the um, you know SPAC listing vehicles, um, if you're not over a billion dollars, it's like no one cares. So th the whole rarity of the unicorn doesn't exist anymore. And I wouldn't mind talking in a in a moment, perhaps after your your bearish segment about a few of the recent raisings, mainly centered around um, crypto based businesses going public or getting public style valuations because some of that is eye-watering as well but i mean the idea of unicorn like a unicorn now a billion dollar startup which is maybe only a couple of years old it's common it's what do we call them i think did we call them leprechauns or something leprechauns leprechauns that was it why did we call them that again you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember our exact <laughs> conversation, which which drove us to this new uh, you know this new term with leprechauns. This is uh, what it was many episodes on a podcast. Ago. Yeah, that, that is the thing. We, there was a good reason for leprechaun because uh, we were talking about you know gold over the rainbow and that kind of thing. Um, but no, I don't I don't exactly recall it. Uh, was leprechaun ah was leprechaun a non-tech unicorn? So it was a, a startup that wasn't involved in software to some degree and instead was involved in another industry and still gained a billion dollar valuation. Was that I, it? I feel like we probably need to revisit this and, and come up with a better way to describe companies that list or, or go public or have these, these billion plus dollar valuations that are, are virtually brand new companies. 
um, that is a bit more common because clearly a leprechaun is not common, uh, it, nor does it actually exist as far, as far as I'm aware. So if anybody has any great suggestions as to what we could call them instead of unicorns, because it's just a misleading uh, term now to call these companies unicorns because they're not rare anymore. Yeah, may, I mean, maybe we just read, maybe we were just talking about leprechauns as, you know, this is just a better term for a unicorn. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I wonder whether or not this this debacle with Greensill is uh, is uh, is a bad omen, right? You know, like uh, well, like to uh, to some degree, like Bear Stearns was, but you know, it's not it's not based on the same thing. It was it's not about real estate lending in this time. This is more about uh, you know large investment banks like SoftBank and the like. Uh, laundering money around uh, in order for their own gain, and I do wonder whether or not this is a, this forebodes something. Like with um, you know Worldcom, Enron. I mean, this was where the tide had come out uh, after all this credit was sloshing around in the 90s, and it was revealing that there was actually an awful lot of fraud going on. It was at, you know this was at the end of the the great 90s boom. Enron, Worldcom was when. The tide went out, and all the all these great names that people had thought were uh, changing the world, actually were uh, pretty 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 bad schemes. You know, there was a lot of bad things going on, a lot mm. of crime going on. Uh, I wonder whether or not now what Greensill means, because the tide hasn't gone out, right? I mean, the central banks are still at it. The government's now going full on stimulus. I wonder what this really, if this is a harbinger for something else. I wonder what that what. You know, in future will be like, oh, green sill. Yeah, that was, you know, that that was the indicator that you know, whatever happens in in three it months. It was, was green sill was the laser eyes of the traditional financial system. <laughs> well, you know, Sam, you know, when you say uh, when you say that it re this reaffirms your belief, the p- complexity of it all and the manner in which it played out reaffirmed your belief in in, uh, in digital assets. You know, I, I do beg to differ somewhat there because. The likes of the the digital economy, um, you know, is incredibly complicated, right? You you, you want to program a smart contract? You want to tell me how a, a, a you know decentralized exchange actually works you know, from the from the ground floor? You know, that is this is very complicated stuff. Uh, so, I yeah, I would you know, I would beg to differ on that. Um, but I'll go onto my onto my bearish point now, which is uh, slightly more like hearted. Uh, I would say uh, this week, I am bearish on um on the price of guinness when <laughs> measured in gold right ah. now let me clarify here this is not just me saying the price of gold is going to go up right this is, it's not as simple as that so uh, over at incrementum uh, over in Liechtenstein, uh, there is a uh, there is uh, you know they they publish a report called in gold we trust it is very very, uh, very much uh, beloved and looked forward to by the gold investor community. And it's read by some very high profile people too. Uh, so one of the chaps who works on it, Ronnie Sturfley, uh, I've interviewed him in uh, recently, well, not recently, but uh, uh, in, uh, you know, in, in times past where we discussed gold and things like that. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to do some stuff in the future as well. But anyway, in gold we trust this year, they've released a, a chart book. They've not released the full report yet. But there was an incredible chart in there. Now, in previous issues, uh, these guys at Incrementum have done a chart of the gold-beer ratio. And this has been using the price of beer at Oktoberfest over the generations in order to be able to give you, you know, the, the, uh, the average pint of a stein when measured in gold, you know, grams of gold, uh, or, or you know, if you're using uh, you know, fractions of a troy ounce. 
However, in this report, they have, uh, you know, they, they've gone to the next level. The gold beer ratio used to be my favorite ratio, but now, you know, they've gone and taken the data sets for Guinness over 120 years. Wow. And they've given us the gold Guinness ratio uh, for over a century. It is, it is quite remarkable. Now, on this, on this chart, which is available, you know, they have, it's, uh, you know, it is publicly, uh, it's in the public domain. Um, you know, Sam, how, much, how, many, what, how many pints do you reckon you could buy, you could buy with, a, with an ounce of gold over, you know, using the, the century average? So over 120 years, what would you say is the average number of pints that you could buy with an ounce of gold? Whoa, that's a good one. Um, 400? Yeah, you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't fault you for it because it would be something I would. I would really struggle with. Uh, I don't. I even even the most devout gold bug would probably have an issue with this, just because I imagine Guinness prices have changed an awful lot over time. So the the historical average for um, you know so for since 1900 would be you could buy 259 pints of Guinness with an ounce of gold. Uh, incredibly, in 1900, so obviously this is Victorian era, well, mostly Victorian era, you know, the kind of the end of it all. Um, and that's when gold standard, we've got the gold standard. But that was when it was 713 pints. Imagine that, 713 pints of Guinness, four wow. ounces of gold. Uh, but over, you know, ever since then, it has declined and declined and declined. Now, it seems to have bottomed actually in the early to mid 2000s. So we're looking kind of the 2005 level yeah. where you could get maybe 100 points uh but these days you know right now we're, we're looking at 309 points now so over if you take the 2020 average it's 309 points so that is above the historical average however yeah. when you consider the amount of time it has stayed below that average uh since really the uh well since really probably yeah, since it peaked in the late 70s, so in 1979, the big inflationary era, you could get 438 pints of Guinness for an ounce of gold. It, you know, it just troughed ever since then, and it really bottomed out in the, uh, the 90s, 2000s era. But now it is ticking back up again. Uh, we're now over that average of 259. But I think, I think uh, that the price, of gold, the price of Guinness is going to get cheaper when measured in gold. Uh, and I say this, as uh, you know, I am a gold bug. I do think gold is going to do well, even though it has gotten uh, really, really harshly treated in recent days, thanks to the rise in, uh, in interest rates in, uh, in the bond market. But I do think I am bearish on the price of Guinness when it comes to, when it comes to gold. I think it's a, it's a fascinating chart. We'll probably, if we do post this on our Twitter, I'll, uh, we'll post it in there uh, with it so everyone can see it. But it is a fascinating chart to see the price of Guinness when measured in gold over the last, uh, over the last 120 years. But yeah, Sam, have you finished your first beer yet? Have you got that rating for us? Yeah, so I did, I did manage to get through the what's in the bag and, and, and subsequently moved on to my next one, which I'll explain in a minute. But what's in the bag was, yeah, like I said, uh, I mean, it was a pretty, pretty good, but not, it wasn't horrible. It wasn't great. So it kind of sits in that middle of the rung. Uh, in the middle of the bell curve, I suppose, with, with our, our beer ratings, I'd, I'd give that a B which is still a very good rating, I will add. I mean, let's be honest, it's pretty hard to get a really bad beer unless it's the Aventinas Doppelbock and you've been drinking it for three weeks straight. So um, I would definitely give the what's in the bag a B, solid B. Um, I'd drink it again, but it didn't, you know, blow my socks off either. Yeah, so what, what's your second one then? So the second one, 
now <laughs> we've over the last so in the last batch of beers that we purchased um from beer 52 again we are not uh we're not sponsored by beer 52 they do not provide us with beers we purchase them out of our own pocket um of course so we'd take them if they offered them well i was gonna say if anybody's out there offering to send us beers that we can drink uh during this we would not say no um anyway during during this batch i for some reason i think they just had a lot of australian beers and a lot of beers in particular from melbourne which is where i was born and last week I didn't have any. Uh, and today my second one is another Melbourneian based beer from the Kaiju uh, Brewery. And Kaiju Brewery is actually in, uh, in a little area of, of uh, sort of southeastern Melbourne uh, called Dandenong, uh, which is actually about, 50, about a 15 minute drive from where I grew up. Um, so I know the area quite well. I don't know the, the brewery because I haven't lived in Australia now for what like eight years um but it's the metamorphosis ipa uh it's a 6.7 percent ipa really cool looking can and i want to read just you know, you know how sometimes like the the beers that we drink have an interesting little description about them on the back this one is, is probably one of the best ones i've i've ever seen so i'm just going to read it out because i mean this is this is something else and it says after being crushed to goo at the hands of the Mechaguaradon, this mysterious beastie plots future devastation from within the hop cocoon. Will its multi-photosynthesis provide sweet relief from the bitter lupulin coursing through its xylem and phloem? I mean, I don't know what that's got to do with beer, but that is something else that is. That sounds like something from maybe, I don't know, like a McDonald's Happy Meal description or something. Matt, I don't know what McDonald's Happy Meals you've been eating, but I have not seen a description like that on a Happy Meal before. What's that? Um, is, that, is, that is that poem called Jabberwocky? Where they, where, they, where they mess around with words an awful lot? Oh, I think I, it, 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 reminds you know me, it reminds me of that kind of thing. I, 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 you've, you've, you've brought up something which now, so this is interesting that you brought up the idea of a poem. Now, when I, when I picked this beer out of my collection to, to drink on, on this recording in this little room we've set up today, um, what, it, what sprung to mind for me was something that I read about, I think it was this morning actually, and this was an NFT, so a non-fungible token that's been created by an artist that goes along with a poem and when you plant, so with a physical poem, I should add, and when you plant the physical poem, it biodegrades and actually grows into a plant, but has an NFT attached to it. Now, we, 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 this might be something for another podcast, another room that we talk about. And to be fair, on, on Clubhouse at the moment, all I seem to be seeing is just rooms about NFTs, uh, which... I feel like I want to jump into, but at the same time, I feel like I would also rather drown myself. Um, so with this, this is just like the NFT phenomenon somewhat absorbed into one. We're talking about a digital NFT uh, linked to a poem that you can plant and it grows into a plant. I mean, does that not just describe everything that's great, fascinating and ridiculous about NFTs at the moment? Right, Sam, you're gonna need to like take this, take me from the beginning of this with what is going on. So I, I do understand the NFT. I, I do broadly understand the NFT uh, phenomenon. I 
I, from to my eyes, it is a mania uh, that is being, you know, is always a seed of truth in a mania, right? There is always a, there's always something genuine, genuinely valuable starting this that people get excited about. And I think people are just getting overexcited about one one sort of side to it. As yeah. it were. you know, it, this is kind of like the beginning of the end for pirating movies to some degree. You know, there, this is the creation of, uh, you know, being able to give a t- have have a title to have legal title to a document that can be easily proven uh, anywhere. And I think people are just going crazy over the fact that, yes, you can create an NFT on a certain blockchain and everyone will know that that token is yours. But then, you know, we don't have the perfect blockchain in order to be able to record this. So you could, you, you could, you could make the same NFT on multiple different token on multiple, multiple different blockchains as it were. Uh, and, there's all the, all this craziness around it because people are just crazy about the idea that finally I can have legal title. Well, it's not legal, is it? I mean, it's just it's just title that mm. can be proven over a file uh, in a way that you know is completely immune to uh, well, not immune, but completely abstracted from things like the rule of law and private property rights uh, rights as we'd have them, uh, you know, in the real world. But what is going on with these poems? So what are you planting? I mean, what what's going on there? Look, in this situation, I'm a little bit confused as to exactly what it means. Because if you've got a poem that you can plant and it biodegrades and, and turns into a plant, then what does the NFT actually represent anymore apart from something that did exist? It feels like maybe, you know, when Banksy did that thing and he shredded it and then it became worth more like the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christie's auction. It almost feels like they're trying to do that. But I think with this, so there's a couple of things right around NFTs. There's, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is, the, which is like anything really uh, that's somewhat, somewhat new. And I say somewhat new because NFTs are not new. Um, right, yeah. They've, they've been around for several years. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of Ethereum wallets that have got quite a, you know, quite a selection of crypto kitties on them, I must say. <laughs> um, one I renamed, um, I think I renamed it Vitalik Nakamoto. Um, anyway, that's that's perhaps- wait, 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 <laughs> Sam. Okay, well, before we get into this, this uh, you know, this uh, blasphemous you know combination of names, Vitalik Nakamoto. Uh, do say to our listeners uh, who are not familiar with the NFT phenomenon and what NFTs are about. Uh, yeah, okay. can you just give a you know sort of brief explain on what these things actually are? Because you know, if you if you weren't familiar with NFTs, they are. It seems like something that. Uh, Mostly so people who are extremely online are familiar with, but people who aren't so extremely online wouldn't be uh, familiar with. What, what's going on? What, are, what is an NFT? So NFT stands for non-fungible token, which is a token that exists on a blockchain uh, that cannot be altered or changed or replicated. It is a one of a kind. It is a unique uh, replication of, of, of something. It is it's effectively um, a rarity but it exists digitally. And so it can prove uh, definitively that something is what it says. So an NFT might re- represent, for instance, a unique piece of digital art. Uh, and if you choose to create just one version of that unique piece of art and uh, you mint an NFT that represents that or that that, that, that artwork exists uh, within that non-fungible token, there will never be another version of it that is exactly the same people can copy it screenshot it but unless it's attached to that 
particular um, a piece of code, that smart contract, then it, it's a copy. So it's a bit like saying, if, and, I, and I had this discussion um, uh, earlier with one of our colleagues uh, who was writing about it, that uh, imagine a, a Van Gogh painting, um, I, I don't know, just any of the Van Gogh paintings, that, that one that's the sunflower, right? That's a one of a kind, right? So that on its own is priceless, or if you had to put a value on it, you know, it's tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. You can think about NFTs in, in a couple of ways. So one being that an NFT of that is a one of a kind. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't go to the gift shop and buy a poster of the sunflower painting by Van Gogh, but it's not the original, it's a copy. And while you might pay 20 bucks for it in the gift shop, it's still not the original. So an NFT can, can convey um, with, with certainty when, when something is rare and unique. And so that's why it's getting a lot of attention at the moment is because there are artists out there that are creating artwork, digital artwork as NFTs uh, and they're rare. And so people are buying them with the view that, you know, it's art and maybe one day it will be worth more than what they purchase it for. Very rarely at this point are people buying it for the artistic integrity of them. That's not to say that's not coming to this space, but at the moment people are just buying them because they're kind of new and there's an element of, I guess FOMO, fear of missing out about the NFT market. But I think what we're seeing now is somewhat of a facade about a bigger underlying story about how we can create digital twins to rare items in the physical world that can, uh, that can attach provenance and ownership and rarity to something. Um, and there's so many different use cases for this, whether it be something like artwork, which is an obvious use case for us, um, but it can be something like collect any kind of collectible, and I wrote about this about a year ago with the idea because I know there, there's a few companies that are doing, that have been doing NFTs. And then this was around the time that the NBA was launching NBA Top Shots. And I remember when I was a kid, one of the most exciting things on a Friday night after school was we'd go to the Glen Shopping Center. Uh, Mum and dad would do the grocery shopping. My brother and I would nick off to the, to the games shop and we'd buy packets of um, NBA trading cards. The idea being that, you know, okay, maybe you most of the time you just get sort of regular, not rare, you know, one of 50,000 versions of a card, but maybe, maybe in there, there was a Shaq rookie card or something like that, or there was an Alonzo morning rookie card or something really cool and really rare. So it's really that kind of thing, but replicated in the digital world. And so I think it's really just an evolution of something that's really been around for a long time, which is the ability for people to collect and trade with rare and unique and valuable items. But a lot of it's subjective. Um, and a lot of it will come down to the artistic integrity of things like artwork or the rarity of things like a rookie card that even though it's digital, doesn't take away from, I suppose, the rarity and the value that, that can attach to something. And when you push that boat out a bit further, you realize that NFTs can be attached to anything like identity. So you and I could have our own NFTs or if, you know, I've got a, I've got, my wife's got a baby on the way. We've got a baby on the way. She's the one that's carrying it, but we've got a baby on the way. <laughs> um, and so, you know, maybe at birth, he is, he is given or assigned or, or minted his own NFT and that's his digital identity for life. And unless somebody can, um, you know, so that, that rules out anybody becoming an imposter or trying to steal his identity because without, that NFT that's in, in, inextricably linked to him, uh, then nobody can, can, can forge 
his signature. Nobody can pretend to be him online because they don't have the private key to that NFT. So we can attach it to things like identity potentially when we start to look at the longer term potential of this. But right now it's just all like Lindsay Lohan did an NFT and it sold for $16,000 worth of Ethereum. I mean, that's just the initial hype phase of what underlying beneath the surface, I think is a much bigger and important area of, um, you know, digital technology with the sort of decentralized crypto networks. Yeah. Uh, I think with the when it comes to verifying identity, I you know I can see that uh, I, can, I can see the sort of value to that where if you can you know if you're the only owner of a private key that represents you and uh, that the the public key for that you know the that key is respected as being you know by the government or whatever the governing authority is that the owner of this private key is Boaz Shoshan, for example. Yeah then that has utility because it makes it very hard for somebody to steal your identity. However, at the same time, what if somebody gets your private key? And this becomes the conversation of, well, how do you hide your private key uh, to the degree that it can't be stolen? And then we kind of get into these, uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe sort of not... Um, it's the Kusama tattoo thing all over again, mate. Right, right, right. You're right. So we get into this sort of dystopian <laughs> level where should... You know, am I going to have a chip? Am I going to get chipped that has my private key in it to ensure that somebody isn't pretending to have my private key? Right? That we get into these really sort of dystopian levels. But, well, but I mean, what if that so was some people? It's just well, what some if that was dystopian. done by not a government entity, or it was you know there was a, a a way to facilitate that where there was it was literally nothing but that. You know, there's no tracking. There's no nothing you know nefarious about it it was literally just like a birth certificate well i, I mean, mean if, some, if somebody's got your birth certificate theoretically i mean and steals a bit of your mail it, i mean what's the difference there surely this would be a harder way to do that i do understand the like, listen i do understand the argument um it's just that it comes down to the question of security of private keys and something i found um you know, this entire system is being based on cryptography. So the idea is, we're, we're using cryptography. We do not need a a an authority with a monopoly over violence in order to enforce things like property rights and in order to allow sort of civilization to run effectively. You know, we're, without um, without this authority that can be corrupted. You know, we can use cryptography to prove who we are. We can use cryptography to conduct trade. Uh, without you know requiring somebody to be a middleman and without somebody you know without uh, you know police force to put people in jail and things like that and with nfts when it comes to ident identity when you know it comes down to you know, who you are what your name is and stuff like that you know i i i'm not confident that the ethereum blockchain which is you know what much of this nft has come much of the nft mania is, is coming from would be the blockchain I would trust with, you know, would be the blockchain I'd trust with that. Uh, there are other blockchains, of course, that are doing their NFTs. Um, I think, I, I, you know, I do think with the NFT mania, because I do believe it is a mania, uh, you know, I, I'll go out there and say that th this is a mania where it's a new technology and people are just getting really, really excited about it. I think what's, what's going on is that people are confusing scarcity with value. So yes, it'll be only one of a kind. Um, and the way you know, I've, I've normally said this, you know, people who believe that you know, Bitcoin's 
uh, halving event where the supply shrinks and shrinks is what is giving it value. And I'm not sure that is what is giving it value. I think it's simply, it's simply reaffirming your trust in the asset itself. I think what gives it value is, is the network itself, you know, people spending it, people sending it around, it being used as a, you know, capital that is then used in turn to you know, represent value uh, in general for other things. But when it comes to, uh, it's not scarcity that just creates value, right? So yeah. I'm you know, drinking this beer out of a nice little glass that I picked up at a beer festival, Lord knows how long ago now in 2021. Right, if I take this thing and I smash it on the floor, there's only one glass in the world that is smashed exactly like that, right? That thing is ultimately scarce. No other glass in the world is going to smash in the way that I have just smashed it. But that doesn't give it any value, right? It is ultimately scarce. And yet, that, I've not increased value here. I think people, people are sort of thinking that because you know, I create a JPEG image or a PNG image or you know, whatever other format, and put it online because there's only one private key to that image and this image is ultimately scarce in that way that it therefore has value and it doesn't ultimately yeah. i mean like, like we I look mean, around at what's the, the kind of images that are being put up as nfts right yeah you are not walking through the loop all right this is <laughs> this is not great artwork you're not this is not a new renaissance in uh, in <laughs> you know the the old masters aren't coming back yeah. This is just images it's, that are taken up. It's now, now the, yeah, it, it is subjective, right? That is what drive that is what's driving these that's, prices. That's what drives normal subjective. artwork too. Subjectiveness, like the subjective beauty of it. There's an element of value because of the rarity, but only if it's deemed to be something of of artistic importance. And you're right, a lot of it's just utter nonsense. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I and listen, listen, I I would say that uh, you know, modern artwork, which has driven much of uh, which is, you know, leading the way when it comes to art values. I mean, the old yeah. masters have been, uh, old master artworks have been in decline. I mean, there, there, it's been a, ultimately a bear market for the old masters artwork. You know, you think of that Da Vinci that uh, Mohammed bin Salman bought. I mean, that's really just a blip. I mean, the reason why that artwork was sold for such a price uh, was, uh, I think, what was it? 400 million euro. Uh, mm. was actually, it was actually snuck into a modern art auction. Right, that is actually one of the reasons why you got that crazy bidding war over that Da Vinci. I mean, it was put there because they knew that was where the money was because modern art is where the money is. Now, I would argue that you know, a lot of modern artwork is either money laundering and, and or plus a bubble, right? But you know, that's kind of a separate conversation. But yes, I mean, art is subjective and we're just seeing that pretty much on steroids now uh, because it's just put on the internet. So anyone can participate. Anyone with Ethereum can participate. Yeah. But I, am I right in th saying that Binance, the smart chain, there are loads of NFTs on that now as well? Yeah, I mean, look, that, and that's the other thing is, right, is you could do an NFT on one blockchain and you could do it on another blockchain and you could do it on another blockchain. So what's to stop someone from just replicating an NFT? And it's like this whole thing with um, NFTs for tweets, turning tweets into NFTs and selling people's tweets. I mean, you're right. There is a massive element of hype about all of it right now. Um, which I think will dissipate eventually, but there will be a lot of people that have spent a way amount too much on NFTs that will just end up holding um, crypto kitties that are, that are really worthless. Um, so there's, there's certainly an element to that. But look, I think um, what might be good at this point is to perhaps give our final ratings on our beers 
and see if anybody that is still with us, we've probably dropped a couple of people along the way that have been sick of sick of our voices for the last hour. So <laughs> if anybody in the room has a question, if you do, feel free to uh, ask a question. We'll, we'll answer this. I think we'll probably wrap the podcast up in a minute and I'll let Boaz do that as he usually does. But um, we might stick around after and, and answer some questions if anybody's interested as well. Oh well, we'll give uh, we'll give the audience uh, you know a little bit of time to uh, to re- to le- to raise a hand I, as I believe the as I believe the custom is on on Clubhouse. Uh, while we're doing that, Sam, uh, do you want to give uh, want to give your rating for your second beer? Yes. So now, I, okay. Now you're going to. I know what you're going to do. You're going to accuse me of of bias because Metamorphosis is from a brewery in Dandenong, which is 15 minutes away from where I grew up. But it's actually a really good beer. And look, I know a lot of the, the Melbourne beers that we've been drinking over the last few weeks, um, I've, I've given pretty decent ratings to. And I swear it's not bias. I, I, I genuinely promise it's not bias. It's just that Australia makes really good beers. And I know for a fact that in Melbourne, the craft and, and um, boutique brewery industry is absolutely booming at the moment. Um, so look, this from Kaiju Beers, this was really good. This is one of the better India pales I've had. And considering it's at 6.7%, it's in that sweet spot that I, that I would expect. This was really, really nice. It's a smaller can, which is what you typically get from the Australians. So it's a 375 mil. It's not the usual 440 or as we prefer, the 500 mil can. Um, I wish it was a 500 mil can because I would keep drinking this without question. I'm going to give this a double B which is a very good rating. I oh mate, I am I am suspecting I am suspecting some um, some of some of that Australian bias going on here. No, but I, but I shall I shall give Nonsense. you the benefit of the doubt. Nonsense. I shall give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think for my rating for uh, for our second beer, uh, it is uh, Alternative Currency by Verdant Brewing Company. Uh, I must say, this is the best label I've had on a beer uh, since we've done this. So in all 37 episodes, this is the best label on a can that I've seen. Uh, it's got a beautiful picture of a, uh, of a sailing vessel, and it's done in the style of the, uh, the American dollar bill. So a nice, uh, the nice green back colors, you know, nice soft, uh, soft whites with sort of a lime tinge, and the, the dark green, nice, uh, uh, he's got the nice dark greens on the, uh, you know, really nice border around it as well. Uh, very nice calligraphy and the, and, and the likes. This is by Verdant Brewing Company. We've had several beers from there. It's an East India porter. Uh, porters aren't for everybody, but uh, they, if you do like your darker beers, they are quite nice. 5.8%. It doesn't taste 5.8%, but it does taste very good. So I think I would give this a, I think I'll give this one a B. Now, uh, do we have uh, any questions from the audience? Uh, if you, if you have raised a hand or anything, I'm sure we can do that. Sam, I'm, you're more of the clubhouse expert, so I'll let you deal with uh, right. with managing that. Uh, I think Brian's been bringing people on stage. It's, it looks like we've got one. Uh, is that right, Brian? That's correct, Joey. All right, uh, Joey, what, what's your question? Hi, guys. Um, yeah, I was interested about the uh, the NFT stuff that you were talking about. The, you know, the cryptos that were uh, backed, you know, digital art that was backed by crypto. Um, my dad's an artist, and ah. he recently got involved in uh, basically there's a project called Idonius and their cryptos are backed by physical luxury assets. Yeah. So, um, you know, houses, I think, but all kinds of stuff. But basically they bought some artwork off him. You know, my dad 
he doesn't know if it's a fad or not. Thought he'd roll the dice and, and did it anyway. So, um, yeah, just what was interested to hear if you think there's any sort of future in that type of uh, crypto projects. Well, how yeah, did it go, like, Joey? Tell us. What's that? How, how did it go? I mean, did he, uh, like, that is in, ter- in terms of how much business they did. I mean, like, how, how far did it go, Joey? Um, it was it was a, it was a decent um, you know exchange that um, I mean in terms of what they gave him in I mean the thing is I don't know if this crypto is really worth anything it's a new project I'm not sure is this, you know this is a this guy for real um, but um, yeah I mean it was a decent exchange that um, my dad would usually charge for that type of thing mm. um, and to be honest you know you know artists is it's, it's pretty tough business sometimes yeah um you know it's not like you know his paintings are flying out the door or anything so he thought look these have been sat here for a while um we aren't quite sure if this is for real or not but um give it a go so yeah it was it was a it was a lot of money um and we're not sure what to do next we basically um he's got this icons uh town exchange um and he can basically transfer money into usd Before, uh, well, well, Sam. Uh, but before Sam jumps in, I'll, I'll give the because I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not nearly so into crypto as Sam is. Uh, I'll just give my my sort of short, uh, my my short answer, and then Sam can go into into more more depth on it. Uh, I would just say, uh, Joey, like congrats, big time. Uh, I think it's I think it's great that you've done that. More power to uh, to everyone who can actually, uh, especially an artist, making money out of this thing. You know, uh, and. Uh, <laughs> Looking at the NFT space from uh, from the artwork that I have seen on it, uh, I do think it needs actually more artists and and good artists. So I think that's that's a very good thing. But um, in terms of uh, what the technology represents, uh, where effectively you can claim title over a digital asset, I think that is a very big thing. Uh, I think that's what everyone's getting really, really, really hyped about. Whether or not Ethereum's the answer, I'm I'm not so sure. But, uh, you know, the technology itself, the ability to do that is the trend that everyone's getting hyped about. And it will definitely have a big, uh, a big thing in the future. Uh, you know, if you look at deep fakes and the degree to they've gotten, uh, to, you know, the degree of advancement, which they've achieved now. If you look, see the Tom Cruise videos that came out uh, maybe a week or two ago, where it's pretty much impossible to tell that it's not Tom Cruise who is making all these videos. The ability to prove whether or not something is real or not is going to have a huge uh, is going to be a huge thing in the future, and that's why everyone's getting excited. But I would say, you know, if you, if you can make money out of this in the in you know this this trend, this hype, this mania, in the meantime, more power to you. Uh, I would just be more. Uh, I would just be cautious on whether or not 
uh, cashing in on the trend or investing in the trend is what you're doing. Because if you want to invest in the trend, then of course, you know, you need to expect that there's not going to be, uh, you know, some sell-offs on, on the meantime. But I'll leave it to Sam to, to go into the, into the crux of the matter. So, I mean, the good thing is, is that what this NFT thing is doing is it, it is giving artists that perhaps would be otherwise maligned a platform to reach a lot more people with their art. And that can be both digital art and physical art. So in, the, in much the same way that a artist can sign and, and number a piece of art, there's really no reason why you couldn't attach a QR code to a piece of art that is representative of a particular NFT uh, that verifies the provenance of that piece of art. I'm not the most technical person in the world, and I'm sure that there would be more technical people that could explain how you would go about doing that. But if you're, let's say if your dad's an artist and he's created a piece of work, he, he could realistically create an NFT uh, and attach it to that piece of art if it's a one of a kind um, and then sell that NFT in the open market and, and physically deliver the good to somebody that buys it um, and, and, and get paid for it in, in crypto. Um, so in, you know, in that respect, it's not that dissimilar to the kind of world that exists, but it does provide a platform so that like, not only could it have the physical uh, artwork itself, but it could be replicated digitally and attached to the NFT so that there's a physical representation and a digital representation of it. So kind of the way I see it is that what, what we, I, this is the kind of future that I envisage for NFTs is that you know, unique pieces of art will be created in the physical world. There'll be a digital representation of them attached to an NFT. And that's that NFT that will be, I mean, the physical art will, will be able to be stored by the owner, whoever has physical delivery of it, usually in a safe location if it's something worth you know, real value. But you'll be able to display that, that the digital version of that anywhere that you want. Maybe that you, you know, you've got a TV, smart TV at home and you can display that artwork at home or lend it out to a gallery without ever having to necessarily display the physical version of it. Or likewise, if it's something of real value, you could you know, create fractions or trade fractions of the, the, the token that represents it. And so that a bunch of people could have fractional ownership of a really expensive but artistically significant piece of work. So, I mean, it's, it's a couple of things. I think the smaller, some of the smaller projects that are looking at trying to get into this space and figure it out, whether they exist or not, isn't necessarily that important. It's which blockchain the NFT that represents it actually exists on. And I think if it's on Ethereum at this point in time, or some of the other bigger, more stable um, blockchains that are out there, I know Tezos is doing a lot around NFTs. Um, I think Cosmos Network and Secret Network are doing NFTs now as well. I'm sure there are others that people will probably you know, bring up. But as long as the network itself is, is distributed enough that it's never really going to go down, which Ethereum, realistically, you'd need everybody to stop running nodes for it to then not have the representative NFT. But if you've got the physical version of it anyway, that's kind of your backstop, right? So, I mean, it, how it plays out is a number of ways. Little blockchains that have no decentralization, barely any users, you probably wouldn't want to necessarily have 
you know, a crypto related to those. I think, I think there's probably something worth, you know, bringing it to the Ethereum network. But it, like I said, it's what's exciting for me about it is that it's, it's a new platform for artists that may never reach more than a handful of people at a local gallery, all of a sudden can potentially reach hundreds of thousands of people on, on platforms like OpenSea or Cargo or things like that. And that's got to be good for the art world if artists can create and get paid and, and, and make a more successful living out of it. I see that as being a good thing, I suppose. I would give a caveat there that, you know, internet platforms for art, you know, have existed for a long time, well before crypto and decentralization, you know, probably DeviantArt is the most, most uh, you know, obvious of those. Uh, so, it, you know, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't think the NFT phenomenon is exactly like, you know, somebody, you know, this is the first time people are monetizing art from the everyman on the internet. But the NFT thing is, I think the title sort of side to it, the, the ability to say that this is mine and this is definitively mine is, is what is new. And I think that's, yeah. that's definitely what's exciting. Uh, the, you know, the element of provenance is really important, I think. In, yes. Yeah, yeah big yeah. time. Because it could... Because then you can see with with the with the NFT because it can be transferred around. I mean, you can see every person who's owned this thing. All well, you the don't. Way it's back not necessarily to, every person. It's just or the you, wallet, can, you can see yeah. where where it is wallet to wallet. So that's the other thing is that you don't you can own and transfer and buy and sell without having to actually reveal your true identity. So you know you could own a Picasso that's got an NFT attached to it uh, that you know you could have, but I'd never know that you owned it. Because it's your name's not attached to, like, say, the Ethereum. Yeah, but I'd know the wallet. I'd know, you know, you'd know the what the wallet was, and the chances are the person who has that probably is probably public about it. Well, I mean, like the CIA knows. <laughs> the CIA know CIA knows who, what the what the provenance is. But of the ability, yeah, the, the ability to trace it back down to the to the creator, I think, it is quite it's quite key. You know, funnily enough, I was actually given a um, a piece of crypto art, not not an NFT. Actually, this is sort of. It, maybe this was even pre-NFT, uh, all things considered. Like, Sam, when was the first time the NFTs came out? It was years ago, right? But how many years? Uh, look, I mean, there's arguments that Bitcoin's an NFT, but I mean, they're, they're somewhat vague. But I mean, realistically, 2017 was what right, you would right. probably probably call the, the spark. Yeah. They, um, I've got, I was given a, a piece of crypto art for, uh, for my birthday, actually, which isn't itself an NFT. What it is, is, a, is an art print, which contains a, a paper wallet, a Bitcoin paper wallet. And if you, so it's got, you know, within the actual image itself, you, there is a QR code that is the public address. And if you go to the backhand, you can actually strip off a layer and find out what the private address is as well. Uh, and it's interesting um, you know, that phenomenon is quite interesting because in a way, if you wanted to, you could send a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin to this, to this picture. And, you know, nobody would really know unless they scanned the, the public key and found out how much, you know, Bitcoin was in it. Uh, so so it's a way of almost giving art value when, you know, otherwise, you know, people may hate the image, but it contains a certain amount of value. Um, and it's quite, yeah, it, this thing... Uh, that I've got, you know, it was made a few years ago. I think it was to celebrate the previous halvening in 2016 because it's uh, it's celebrating the 12 and a half BTC block reward, which I think was the 2016 halvening. Uh, but it is cool to have a um, you know a public you know a public pri a, well paper wallet inside a painting quite like that. But that's kind of before the NFT craze because that's ultimately it's not the image itself that I have the NFT for. It's 
this image contains a sort of a, a treasure trove within it, or it could at least. Indeed, but uh, I, I think, do we have any more questions from the audience? Otherwise we should probably wrap up. I'm sure people have got things to do today. Um, yeah, but... quite, quite right, like, like ourselves, in fact. Well, very good, folks, very good. Uh, we shall wrap this up. This was episode 37 of Booze, Booms and Bust, the first one that we've ever done on Clubhouse. Very enjoyable indeed. We may, we may well do this in future. Uh, thank you all for listening to this, and we shall be back with episode 38 next week. We'll see you then.